Good morning, 1548 Heights, members and friends online and in person, grace and peace to you in abundance. You know, there's a feeling in the sanctuary today like a progeny, you know, kids and grandchildren, and it, uh, I just love seeing that, you know, uh, some of the uh, Kramer progeny are here, some of the Burkhalter grandchildren. Randy and Paige Zinert's three children are in town for Randy's 49th birthday. I mean, it's just great. Uh, I love seeing you all. I met some of guests, guests for the first time here today. We love having you here. Everyone is smiling today, and I can't imagine why that is. Uh, it, I, Alan would say because the Astros won. Well, no, we were expecting that. It's built in. But uh, this morning I got up very early, and I didn't go outside or anything. I just got my coffee and went into my home office. And Angela got up later, and she took the dogs out, and she said, Oh, my goodness, it's 57 degrees outside. And, you know, after the summer we've had, this is kind of what I envisioned here. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know are we going to be able to drive? And so what am I going to wear? So I threw on my best clothes for this kind of... <laughs> I'll tell you what, friends, uh, we ought to have a ticker tape parade today because it's been such a long, miserable summer, but it's, it's great to have this beautiful weather. At 1548 Heights, our mission is to be a transforming church for God and for good in the world as God transforms us into the image of Jesus. I love being on mission with you. Today is Baptism Sunday. We schedule these about every quarter just to continue extending the invitation to people who may be ready to take that very important, even deciding step of faith to put on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, to die and be raised with him in newness of life, to walk as his follower and to do that in a public way. So I'll extend the invitation uh, to you at the end of this message, and if you feel the Holy Spirit leading you, we'll actually baptize people after the service, after the benediction, but uh, just come up and let me know if you'd like to be part of that. We are in the fifth week of a series called Encountering Jesus. And as I always do, I'd like to just give credit to people I'm using as a conversation partner. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book called Confronting Jesus, Nine Encounters with the Hero of the Gospels. So I'm tracking that book a little bit. We've talked about encountering Jesus the teacher, Jesus the healer, Jesus the missionary, Jesus the lover, and today we're going to talk about encountering Jesus, the sacrifice. Next week we'll talk about encountering Jesus, the Lord. Each of these looking at a, a dimension of how we relate to Jesus and Jesus relates to us. In Luke 169, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, says, God has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. So we're going to focus on Jesus as Savior, sacrifice today. So as we always do, let's read John chapter 1, verse 29 through 40, 34. Read the Word of God together. There's an outline that's in your bulletin. If you receive that coming in, some of you find that helpful to, to uh, follow along and take notes and fill in the blanks. I invite you to do that now if you'd like to. John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. 
Listen to the word of the Lord. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Thanks be to God for his word and for his living word, Jesus Christ. Let's start by just setting the table a little bit. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel proclaims that Jesus dies a substitutionary death to atone for humanity's sins. Jesus dies a substitutionary death to atone for humanity's sins. In other words, he dies a death for, on behalf of humanity, for humanity's sins. This is the gospel which is called the good news. Gospel means good news. It's the basic proclamation about what God has done in Jesus and what God is doing in Jesus. Now, if you're not real familiar with that word atone, it means to make amends or reparations, to try to make something right that has been wrong. Now, it's very interesting that this basic word for atone or atonement is only used twice in the New Testament, even though it's uh, the, the, the principle is throughout the New Testament. And I want us to read those together. Romans 3, 21 through 25. The word is hilasterion. And the Apostle Paul says, But now, irrespective of law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, this is what makes us right with God. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. Isn't that interesting at the end? Effective through faith. We make this effective, effectual for ourselves by putting our faith and trust in him. And then Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he, Jesus, had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. These both hearken back to uh, the, the, the time of Israel and Moses. And we see that in Leviticus 16, this basic teaching, verse 15 through 16. The priest, he, shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the curtain, sprinkling it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And that mercy seat is the word atonement or bima 
You ever heard of Bema? There used to be a Christian band named Bema. That was uh, before your time, many of you. Not before Randy Zinert's time, though. But I'm giving him a new age today. <laughs> now listen. Thus he shall make atonement for the sanctuary because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. It's interesting, this word atonement, it wasn't even part of, uh, well, it became part of the English language in about the 1500s. And my best understanding is they had to make up something to try to represent the Latin and the Greek. They didn't, we didn't have a word in English. And so here's what they came up with, at-one-ment. At-one-ment, something that makes one uh, something that has been broken apart or estranged or fractured uh, and so, hence atonement. Now, make this note, the scriptures give us different examples to understand this. And we're going to look at three of those examples today. And the first is the sacrificial lamb. This is probably the one that is most prevalent uh, and populous in, uh, in the New Testament. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham, the father of faith... He is told by God, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go take him and offering him as a burnt offering, a sacrifice offering, uh, and just do it. And Abraham, it's kind of a test. But as they go, Isaac says to his father, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And God does. God stays Abraham's hand, and uh, Abraham sees a lamb in the thicket, and he uses the lamb for an offering. But his son knew, where's the lamb? This is what we do. We, we offer a sacrificial lamb to, to make atonement for our sins. Isn't it interesting that when Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go, you know, Charlton Heston and the great Ten Commandments. That's too old for you youngsters too, but <laughs> you know. what does he ask him to do? He says, let us go into the wilderness to what? Have a praise concert? No, to sacrifice to the Lord our God. After the ten plagues, when God says, now I know that I have to lead you out of Egypt. Pharaoh is not going to let you go. God tells them, sacrifice a lamb and smear blood on the doorposts, and I will pass over those doors. The angel of death will pass over those doors. So we have the Passover lamb, which is a sacrificial lamb. McLaughlin says, like a water purification plant, God sets up processes to separate his people from the sewage of their sin and to enable them to live purely before them. So from the beginning of God's relationship with his people, he has, he has given them this process to acknowledge their sinfulness and to, uh, if you will, make atonement for it, to, to, to confess it and turn away from it. And that is just part of God's relationship with his people. So when John says that we just read in chapter 1, verse 29, when John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, 
everyone listening goes, oh yeah, we know all about lambs, sacrificial lambs. You mean this is the lamb of God? It's just huge. And so we're given this sacrificial lamb example to understand what Jesus has done for us. A second example is the shepherd. The shepherd. So Israel and Jews were very familiar with sheep and shepherds. And as we were led by Ashton and the breathing prayer, they were certainly familiar with the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay, so very familiar with the shepherd analogy. Look at what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 10 through 11. See, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. The Lord is the good shepherd. Now, look at what Jesus says in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, sacrifices his life for the sheep. It's, uh, it's kind of humorous, but remember when David uh, is sent to the battle front and by his father to check on his brothers, and David ends up volunteering to fight Goliath, and Saul, King Saul, says, Ah, you're kind of young <laughs> and wimpy. <laughs> and, uh, and David goes, wait a minute. I have been watching my father's sheep, and if a mountain lion or a bear grabs one of those sheep, I go after that mountain lion and bear, and I kill it. In other words, he risks his life for the sheep. And Jesus says, I don't just risk my life. I give up my life for the sheep. Now look at how this is turned around. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for sheep. We have gone astray, and we need something done to bring us back. McLaughlin says, Jesus has stepped into God's role as the true shepherd of his people, but he's also stepped into his people's place to take their punishment. He's both the shepherd and the sacrificial lamb. Now the third example, the temple. The temple. So the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, but a second temple was built and by the first century, as one commentator says, resplendent on the temple mount, replete with gold and precious stones, a place of teaching, prayer, and sacrifice, of blood and smoke and fire, the temple was the people's meeting place with God. The temple was the people's meeting place with God. Isn't it interesting? The only story we have from Jesus' youth, remember what it was? Jesus, his parents go to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they leave, and he's not with them. You know, there's a whole group of people, and they think he's with one of the other parents. And so the priests call uh, Child Protective Services, and they're arrested. No, no. But uh, they finally find him after three days of looking for him. And he says, why are you so upset? Did you not know I must be in my father's house, the temple? 
Well, later, <laughs> in a story we all love, because it's really the only time Jesus uh, uh, shows his anger. Guys love this, man. If we didn't have this one, we, we, we wouldn't know what to do. But Jesus goes into the temple, and he sees people, m- the money changers, and he takes a whip of cords, and he starts... And he kicks them all out, and he says, you have made, stop, stop making my father's house a, a house of, a marketplace. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Well, the Jew, Jewish leaders say, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they go, what do you mean? It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to destroy it, and then in three days raise it up? And John gives this little note. He says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus has spoken. Now, if this is a confusing metaphor for you, you know, Jesus is the temple, the temple is Jesus, you know, I understand. Um, I, of course, understand it because uh, I'm a preacher, and, but you don't try this interpretation at home, okay, unless you're, you have guidance. Uh, but, but McLaughlin says, she, she uses an analogy. She says, one time my friend took me out for dinner, and she said, I just want, I'm just in the mood for soup dumplings. If any of you ever take me out to dinner for soup dumplings, we're not friends anymore. But she said, I really wasn't. I wasn't all up for it, you know, soup dumplings, you know, dumplings and soup. And so she's thinking, will the dumplings be in the soup, you know, floating around, and she's having all these problems. And, and the dumplings come, and they're dry. And she's puzzled. She says, are they going to bring the soup? What do we do? And the friend goes, no, the soup is in the dumplings. You bite off the top of the dumpling, and the soup is in it. There's soup dumplings. Well, in the same way, Jesus says, the temple is in me. I'm not in the temple. The temple is me. Everything the temple represents is in me. And that's why I say, if you destroy it in three days, I'll raise it up because my body will be destroyed. The temple is in me. And with that stunningly effective analogy, I know you understand it all now. No. <laughs> okay. How would we, I don't know, bring this back down to earth? Friends, Jesus is not our life coach. Here's why I say that. It's very easy to sort of forget about or uh, move away from this core mission Jesus has. And we start thinking of Jesus as our teacher, which he is, our missionary, which he is, our healer, which he is, our lover, which he is, but we don't really think we're all that necessary to save. You know, we're all pretty good people, okay? We don't have grime under our fingernails. You know, we're, we're sophisticated in some ways, maybe not in others. But, you know, we're, we're, we're not like the great unwashed that just have to be saved by Jesus. 
Uh, I mean, even, even the, the term saved, it sounds so corn-pone, you know? Like, are you saved, brother? You know, a little pick, toothpick in your mouth. And, but, but this is the sine qua non without which not there is no gospel. This is the core mission of Jesus. Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. I love Tim Keller, Keller's definition of the gospel. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. At the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared believe. Those two. In those two is the gospel. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This, if you want to know Jesus, you will only get so far without acknowledging your need for an atoning His atoning sacrifice for your sins. To uh, reconcile, that's another word in the New Testament, reconcile you to God in Christ. That is the gospel. And so, if you're thinking, you know, I'm a pretty good person, I'd I really like to get more polished up by going to church and getting to know a little more about Jesus, you know, have at it. But that's not going to last because there's no power in it. There's no depth in it, and there's no, uh, there's no salvation in it. There's not the Holy Spirit being given to you. It, it's missing that core. It's like a donut, okay? I mean... I'm sorry, I didn't need to go into sweets, but, you know, uh, it, it's just missing the main thing. Um, isn't it, it, you know, think about, think about, you go to the doctor and you say, a doctor says, how are you feeling? You know, I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty good, doctor. You know, I'm, I know I'm a little overweight and, you know, I got, you know, I'm not sleeping that well, but I'm in good health. And the doctor says, well, why don't we just do a CT scan? And the doctor does a CT scan. Is that the right one? A CT scan? Yeah. And he puts it up under the light, you know, and it's just stuff, stuff all, all in there. All our selfishness, all our pride, all our sin, all our uh, perversions, all our compulsions, all that, all our pettiness. And we just think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I, I, I'm glad Jesus is available to help me when I need him. <laughs> and the gospel is, no, you're more sinful and broken than you ever dared imagine, but you are more welcomed and loved in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. That is the gospel. And so Jesus is not our divine life coach. He is our Savior. He is our Savior. Many people use this expression, Lord and Savior, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, it sounds kind of old-fashioned and everybody, you know, because we're so sophisticated now and enlightened, but hey, that's the, that's the biblical language. It's the biblical language. This is the language God gives us to make sense of this. Luke 2.11, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Matthew 1.25, name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, see? It's always right there. Salvation, saving, saving, saving. Last point here. Where does baptism fit into all this? Our baptism enacts and participates in Jesus' saving death for our sins. Uh, 
Our baptism, if you will, is our way of stepping into this redemptive drama and saying, I want to be part of this. Our baptism enacts this. You know, we baptize by immersion because just as Jesus was buried in the grave and raised up, like Jesus was raised up, resurrected, in baptism, we are buried to our sinful self, our old self, and raised up in newness of life. Isn't that a beautiful representation of what we know is happening inside, what we trust is happening inside? It's been called death by drowning. Yes. Put to death to our old self. And so Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, the, the, the goal isn't to be baptized. The goal is be, to be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so I want to close with this scripture, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. It's just this incredible scripture. Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that an incredible promise? That Jesus, who has taken his seat at the right hand of God, always lives to make intercession for you. And Jesus is, is always, in a sense, saying, Tessa, she's with me. She, I stand with her. Wade, he's with me. I stand with him. Uh, uh, Rhonda, she's, she's with me. I stand with her. Always making this intercession so that we never have to stand alone before God, as it were, in our sinful selves. That's what that means. That's the promise, friends. And so I, I just want to ask you, do you know that assurance? Would you like to know that assurance? Would you like to have the confidence that nothing can ever separate me from the love of God and Jesus Christ because I have put my faith in Him? Romans 6, effective through faith. That's what baptism means. That's what baptism signifies. And so I'm going to pray now, and I'm just going to, I'm going to use words that if you find yourself using those as you pray, listen to that. Listen to that. And I'll just be up front here after we sing our song, come to the altar, and I give the benediction. If you'd like to talk more, if you'd like to be baptized today, uh, we'd love to help you do that. If you didn't bring extra clothes, don't worry about it. Richard will give you his clothes. Jared will give you his clothes. That ain't nothing, man. When you're talking about being reconciled to God, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, that you provide the sacrificial lamb so that we don't stand before you worthy of death. And thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you that he has stepped in for us and died the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Lord, We put our faith in that. I put my faith in that. 
so that Jesus can always intercede for me and I can stand with him. Thank you, Lord. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.